You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. We have a special treat tonight. We have wonderful friends coming all the way from Texas. Um, It was an interesting thing as I was preparing for tonight and talking about our apostolic relationships, and I came across this passage out of Romans 16, and it says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epaphanitus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Androconus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, my beloved Stachius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those who are workers in the Lord, Tryphanius and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asenincritus, Felagon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And I just, and it feels like a genealogy, but these are his friends. These are the people who did work together that they sent out and they're connected still and they remember one another. And it can feel like a lot to read through it and go through it, but it is powerful. And it does say something about what we believe in relationships, that we're friends. It's first and foremost that we have this relationship of what we do together in all of this. And so I want to bring up my friends. And I'm going to bring up Rachel first to be able to say hello. Hello. It's wonderful to be here. I'm sorry. I'm allergic to every animal. And so I was sitting in worship and I'm like lifting my hands going, oh gosh, why am I so itchy? (laughs) So I'm sorry if I look crazy. My hair might look crazy. It's okay. This is, y'all are one of our most favorite places to be. Thank you. You are a home away from home family, and um, we are incredibly proud of Joe and Emily and the team, the remarkable um, eldership team here. They've just done remarkable since Steve and Terry have handed over. We love being with you guys, love seeing what Jesus is doing here. And I was in tears in the front row. Like There, there really is something so special about coming together and worshiping Jesus together, hearing your brother and your sister singing, No Place I'd Rather Be, How Awesome Is Jesus, My Faith Is Stirred, my heart is stirred. God is here with you. It's powerful. It's beautiful. All the changes look just incredible. So it feels very special for us to be here. Thank you for the invite. It's an honor. Look forward to meeting you. Those that I haven't met yet, and I'm talking too much, but so much love. <laughs> All right, come on up, Brian. I'm going to pray for <laughs> I like you. Know, I'm taller than you. Over here. There you go. <laughs> I had to bring on Ty on the team, so I wasn't the shortest guy anymore because we're a super tall church. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Lord, we thank you for Brian. Uh, we thank you for the gifting that he's bringing. Um, we thank you for the wonderful friendships that we have. We just pray that you prepare our hearts for everything that you've prepared in him tonight. Amen. Awesome. 
It is uh, fantastic to be here. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Brian. My dad and mom are Steve and Terry Barr. If you don't know them, then congratulations, you're newer here. So um, it is uh, great to, to be here. Um, it is always exciting. I think we've come at least every year for umpteen years. So it is fantastic. Um, it is so sweet to have my parents with us at our church in Texas. Um, years and years ago, uh, we all kind of understood that our first and primary goal in life was to follow the leading and prompting of the Lord. And that ended up sending my parents here, and uh, Rachel and I and uh, my, my sister and brother-in-law to Texas. And thinking, man, it's, it's a bummer we're not together, um, but it is great that we're all serving the Lord. And then to be brought back together um, and to have my parents attending uh, One Life, very involved. I mean, they're the best community group leaders. <laughs> Everybody wants to be in their community group. My dad's always saying, hey, come to my community group. We have the best desserts. And um, like he's working the, the foyer in our church and making sure all the new, uh, new people feel welcomed. Uh, my mom, you know, my mom, she's just a powerhouse. So uh, they are an absolute gift to us. So they are doing well. They send their love. They send their greeting. And uh, we, as a, we as a church, we're just experiencing a lot of growth. And it's so valuable to have my parents' wisdom at, at our church. So it's exciting to hear all the great things that are happening here at this church. And uh, like your guys were packed out last Sunday. No, no. So that's great. That's so exciting. What's God have in store for Westside? It has to be good things. It has to be good things. All right. I'm going to uh, preach a different message tonight than I am on uh, Sunday. And so this is a special message. Um, this is actually, I was, I was chatting to Joe, like, what should I preach, man? And then um, I just remembered this morning, my dad actually said, hey, if you go to Westside, preach this message. So at my dad's request, you're getting it. <laughs> So open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. This is such a well-worn well text, well-known text. There are so many one-liners in this passage we're about to read. You're very familiar with. You probably have them tattooed on your body somewhere. Um, or hanging up in your bathroom. Um, like a nice little quote. Um, so... I want us to look at this passage because I think, I think it's super helpful, the way that Paul leads this church in walking in the ways of Jesus. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Mrs. E and I entreat Mrs. S. I am not Joe and I did not work to pronounce every single person's Name, okay, Yodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
All right, all right. We're just right on the same page. Okay. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, is there anything worthy of praise? Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, Paul is ending this book. He's ending this book and he's given phenomenal instruction uh, throughout the book, but he's coming to an end. In the previous passage, he's talking about what it looks like to grow in spiritual maturity. He says this in Philippians 3.15. He says, let those who are mature think this way. Paul is trying to get this church to act in a mature way because Paul wants this church to grow up and leave childish things behind. 1 Corinthians 13.11 says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put childish things away. So this passage actually helps us identify some childish things if we just look at the opposite of what he's encouraging. Like immaturity and childishness looks like Christians and looks like a church who are constantly feuding with one another, constantly bickering. It looks like a church that is joyless and is lacking in joy. It looks like a church that's ungracious and inconsiderate, maybe even rude and unkind. It looks like a church that's full of anxiety and worry. And it looks like a church that's mirroring the patterns and behavior of the world. And these are all childish practices. And Paul wants this church to grow up. So this is a leadership lesson here. If we're just looking at what Paul is doing, because Paul has communicated some profound truths profound truths that if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with the book of Philippians, I mean, there is some great truth and foundation that's laid. But Paul is bringing to an end, and he's, he's doing something that we as leaders need to clue in on, because he's leading these people well. He isn't just giving them truths to believe, he's giving them practices to behave. And that's what we have here. It's not practices of the world, it's counter-practices that bring us into alignment with what we believe. It is not just enough to believe something, we also have to practice the truth that we profess. We have to practice the truth that we profess, and this is what Paul is teaching them to do. He's, in he's intentionally communicating and calling them to counter practices so that they can grow as followers of Jesus. Now, we can't expect that we are going to grow up and be mature if we're just believing the right things. Right. We actually have to practice the right things. So this is what Paul's doing. Great leadership here. He isn't just saying believe something. No, he's saying practice something. And we need to be good at practicing the way of Jesus if we're going to grow up in spiritual maturity. So I have loved CrossFit for 10 plus years. So much so, you know, we got some CrossFit fans in the room. 
So much so my two, my two oldest boys are competitive in CrossFit. I mean, for 10 plus years, I, I'm, I'm like convinced that the best way to work out is the philosophy of CrossFit. It is so much more superior than whatever else you're doing, whether it's kickboxing or yoga. It's better. It's the best. I'm convinced of that. About a year and a half ago, I hurt my knee and I haven't been able to work out. And I probably could have worked out and did something good, but I was so upset I hurt my knee, I threw a fit and didn't work out. So, <laughs> some would say. Um, so what's happened over the last year and a half? I've gotten fat, I have gotten out of shape. I mean, it's just sad. So, the question is, am I a CrossFitter? No. Like, think about it. I mean, I've, I'm like convinced of this thing. I mean, I have a history of doing this thing. I've convinced other people to do it. I mean, I have a phenomenal like CrossFit gym in my garage. Like, am I a CrossFitter? Are you sure? I mean, come on. I, I'm, <laughs> you don't understand, though. Like, the professional CrossFitters, they have these shoes and I wear the same exact shoes that they wear. Am I a CrossFitter? No, I'm not a CrossFitter because I am not practicing. I am not practicing the sport that I say is so great. Now, if we want to grow as followers of Jesus, it requires that we grow that we improve, that we advance. There are practices associated with the Christian faith, things that we say we believe, there's practices associated with those that we as followers of Jesus must practice if we're going to grow up and mature. Growing up and maturing requires effort, requires repetition, requires persistence. Now, you might be thinking right now, wait a second, is he teaching if you're not if you've become a Christian and you're no longer practicing, now you're no longer a Christian, uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just asking you to, to pay attention because if your practices are at alignment with your profession, that's a problem. That's a problem. And, and theologically, we're, uh, like we call this cheap grace. People that say, oh, Jesus takes care of our sins. We just believe in him. He takes care of everything. It doesn't matter what you do because it's all covered under the blood of Jesus. This is to disdain the work of Christ. It's cheap grace. Dallas Willard says this, grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. In Titus, it tells us that the grace of God trains us towards godliness. And so we, if we're going to grow up and mature, we have to understand that we have to participate in specific practices that the things that we profess, we got to hold fast to them and engage in counter practices so that we look like Jesus. Because Jesus was very different than this world. And God's intention for us as the people of God, this specific church, to be a light into this region. How? By counter, by, by demonstrating what you profess through your practices. So, this is what we look at as we, as we look at what Paul is doing at the end here. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, these are not just encouragements, they are commands. They're not just good advice, they're commands. And Jesus wants us 
to give up our lives and follow him as he has faithfully called us to do. And commands don't require that you necessarily understand them. Jesus tells us to do them, and we're supposed to do them. And so often, it's kind of popular right now, it's like, I don't know, let's question Jesus for a while until we are fully convinced that it's the right next step for us. As followers of Jesus, we just got to take the right next step out of obedience to God. It isn't an option for us whether we understand it or not. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, you know, based on your history, that you have taken steps of obedience and you were like, I don't know about this, God. This like really hurts. I mean, this is costing me a lot. I'm sacrificing. I don't understand why you're requiring of this, this of me. And, and so you've faithfully taken that step and then you've taken more steps, and then you look behind you and say, oh, it makes sense all of a sudden. That's why you told me to do that particular thing. Like we get understanding as we, as we obey Jesus. So we want to practice counter practices uh, that are different than the patterns of this world. So Paul gives us five counter practices. You guys with me? Yeah. Ready to go through five counter practices? So the first practice that followers of Jesus, and I just want to say, this is basic Christianity. And if we could just do these five practices right now in America, like the Christians in America, just doing these five basic practices, they're not like, like advanced degrees here. We're talking about basic Christian practices. If the Christians in America can just practice these five things, I think we could turn this entire nation upside down. So, what are these five practices? Number one, agree in the Lord with other believers. The first thing he tells us is to agree in the Lord with other brothers. We have these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche. Uh, we don't know what their issue is. I don't even know how to pronounce their name. But here's what we do know. We know that there is an unresolved issue between two of them that has gone on too long and it started to be septic in the church. Disagreement between two people, whole church is aware of it, it's starting to affect the well-being of the church. So the question is, what do you do when this happens? Well, Paul, this is what a good leader does. And any good leader should do this. What does Paul do with these two ladies in this situation? He calls it out. He calls out their dysfunction. He calls them out by name, recorded in scripture 2,000 years ago. The only thing we know about these ladies is that they were dysfunctional in a church. This is what... We're in Philippians. Yeah. Awesome. So here is what good leaders need to do. This is what a good church need to do. Unhealthy environments are ones that don't give members permission to call out dysfunction. Healthy environments are places where dysfunction can be called out. Unhealthy environments is when everybody knows that there's dysfunction, but nobody says anything. So think about this. I mean, in my marriage between Rachel and I, we have a great marriage, honest marriage, great communication. 
if she has a problem with me or if I have a problem in, with her, healthy call-out culture. Some of you have a dysfunctional marriage because you don't have a healthy call-out culture. In my family, I have four kids, and my kids all have permission to call out dysfunction in me. I'm, I might like get irritated with rates in the house, and I might say something a little sharp, a little something with a little cutting, a little, little aggression to it. My daughter goes, whoa, 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 dad, you're not allowed to talk to mom like that. And what do I do to my daughter? You know, shut up, kid. Respect your elders. No, 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 that's not helpful. No, you're actually, actually, daughter, you've been trained right. You know what health is, and you know what dad just did was dysfunctional. And you calling out is right and appropriate. It creates a healthy environment. Yeah. My eldership team, healthy call-out culture. We will not put up with any negative attitudes, any sense of bitterness, any, any divisiveness, any passive-aggressive attitudes. I mean, in our eldership, we're having a conversation, and someone slips and says something passive-aggressive. It's like, time out! That was passive-aggressive. Restate what you want to say. Because we're not going to permit dysfunction within our environment, because it will result in dysfunction in the church. This is, good, this is good, healthy dynamics within any relational context of people. So he tells them to agree with one another. This isn't just agree, but this includes loving one another, being united to stop feuding and stop hurting the church. So the question is, how in the world are we going to agree? Well, Paul gives us the qualifier here. What is the qualifier? That we agree in the Lord. So here, here's the principle. Two people are, are fighting or feuding. If both people are submitting and following the Lord, then those two people could come together and agree in the Lord. If you can't agree, it is most likely because you are holding on to your offenses and to your opinions and to your preferences and to your way. And we got to die to ourselves and submit and follow Jesus. We got to work towards unity. We have to agree in the Lord. And we see this in the life of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Well, Philippians 2 tells us he humbled himself. He laid down his life and he serves. And so what do we need to practice as followers of Jesus, as a community of Jesus? We need to practice agreeing in the Lord with other believers. So that's the first practice. We good? Yeah. Yeah. Woohoo! Are we having fun? Yeah. Second, second is this. Practice is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Just in case we didn't get it the first time, Paul repeats himself and says, again, I say rejoice. How many other times, if, if you're familiar with the New Testament, how many other times is Paul repeating himself like this? It's not too many. And so what does this tell us? Like we have a tendency, and, and I notice this in churches, we have a tendency to minimize the importance of joy in our lives. And Paul is doubling down and he's wanting to emphasize it. 
We want to minimize joy. Oh, it's not that important. Let's just grind it out. Paul's now like, no, this is an important thing. So I'm going to repeat myself and command you to do it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Amen. There are too many joyless churches. There's too many joyless Christians. Like, have you ever like coworker or neighbor and like you didn't know him for, you didn't really have a good conversation with them. You didn't know they were Christian. It's all of a sudden like two years in, you're like, oh my gosh, you're a Christian. I would have never known. You're a miserable person. <laughs> now, the kind of joy that Paul is c- commanding is something that is consistent and constant. It's consistent means it doesn't stop and start. Like, okay, I'm going to be joyful now, and then I'm not joyful. No, it's consistent. And it's a constant state of joy, meaning it doesn't go up and down the roller coaster. It's like one week, you meet Johnny, he comes to church, he's all happy. Yeah, I'm blessed, brother. And then the next week, he's down. Oh, man, I'm just down in the... It's not the roller coaster. It's constant state of joy. And so Paul commands it. And so we have to say, like, wait a second, this seems like a pretty difficult command. Like, it's almost impossible. Like, how in the world are we supposed to do this consistent and constant state of joy? Now, we will be confused if we think that joy is an emotion that is spontaneous and involuntary. And it just happens if you're caught up in the right moment, the stars align. <gasps> I'm full of joy. <laughs> if we think of joy in this way, it will be impossible to, to obey this command. But if we think of joy like we do another virtue, love will have a better understanding of what we are supposed to do with joy. We know that love isn't an emotion. We know that love is a choice. It's a decision followed by action. And what Paul is commanding is the same thing. Joy is a choice. It's a decision followed by action. It's not romantic love. Um, and this is not being caught up with the, in the moment with joy. Oh my gosh, I'm struck with joy. I'm so happy. Uh, that's, this isn't what Paul is saying. Paul's actually encouraging spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity looks like really joyful people. Like we have this false understanding. We like look at like, you know, someone that's been coming to church forever and they look miserable and we think, oh my gosh, they must be super spiritual. (laughs) Paul's saying, no, if you're spiritual, if you're mature, you're full of joy and you figured this thing out. So here's what spiritual immaturity looks like. It starts with spiritual immaturity. Yeah, you could go through the whole thing there. This is what spiritual immaturity looks like. We start with our feelings. It's all about feelings. It's what I feel in the moment. And if I'm going to be joyful, well, I have to be caught up with joy in the moment and then I'll be full of joy. And that's going to determine whether I'm joyful or not. And that's, this, is, this is a marker of spiritual immaturity, waiting for our feelings to come. And so oftentimes, this is pretty much the way the world works. It's like people are encouraged to do this. Have we, have we heard within the world, follow your heart? 
Yeah, just follow. What are we saying? Whatever the momentary feelings that spontaneously are combusted in your inner being, those are your true feelings. You listen to those, and that determines what you're going to do. Well, I don't want to be married to this person anymore. And so our will starts to take action. And then we find a bunch of uh, people and blogs and, and whoever it is who will agree with whatever we have decided to do. Like right now, I have this lady in our church who is insisting on getting divorced. She doesn't have any biblical permissiveness to get divorced, but she's saying, no, I'm going to find my truth so I can do what I want to do. This is spiritual immaturity. So what does maturity look like? Well, it looks, it looks completely different. Spiritual maturity starts with biblically informed truth. Like, what does Jesus have to say about this? Well, I'm going to embrace that truth. I'm going to believe that truth. I'm going to get my entire being behind that truth. I'm going to start obeying whether I feel like it or not because God has said this is true and this is right. So I'm going to obey. I'm going to bring my alignment into it. And then feelings are a gift. I don't want to say that feelings are a bad thing. God's given us emotions. He's given us feelings. And, and we, when we experience the blessing of following God's pattern, our, our, our feelings come into alignment. And they are an amazing way to bless us in our lives. And this is what Paul is commending these people to rejoice in the Lord always. So how do we rejoice always, regardless of our circumstances? Because... If you're familiar with Philippians, Paul's in jail right now. How is he rejoicing in the Lord? It's not based on his circumstances. The joy that we're called to live is not based on how we feel. It's not based on our circumstances. It's not based on our achievements or our failures, but in the fact, the truth that we are in Christ. Our joy is based on Jesus. Our access to him, our relationship with him, who he is, what he has done for me, who I am now in Christ. These are all the things that I can find joy in because these things are true regardless of my circumstances in life. Rejoice in the Lord always. All right. Are we ready for the third practice? Counter practice? is let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, The NIV says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The NLT says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase says this, make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. Are Christians right now in America known for being reasonable? I'm not asking about you. Let's just do an honest assessment of the average American Christian. Are we known for being reasonable? The opposite of reasonableness is contention. His argumentativeness is self-seeking. To be reasonable is to be like Jesus. 
Jesus was gentle. Jesus was gracious. Even to, his, even to those who wanted to hurt him, he was still gracious. He was always seeking to reconcile with others. Jesus was this non-anxious presence. Like, no matter how bad it got, Jesus wasn't riled up with emotions and started reacting and counterattacking. No, he was always calm. He was always a non-anxious presence, even in the most anxious moments. And he was willing to give up his preferences. This doesn't mean that he compromised the truth. It doesn't mean that we compromise our biblical convictions. But we do so with grace. We do so with kindness. We do so with patience. Not volatile, not combative. This is actually a biblical value. This is a practice the followers of Jesus are to engage in. Now, if we're just taking an assessment, let's say the last three years of Christians in America, I think we have failed. I think we've done a pretty bad job. I think it's most evident in politics. And this isn't a political thing. Have your political convictions. It's, it's right to vote. It's right to... Uh, discern who's the best candidate to vote for. But it's not okay to go against Christ's attitude of reasonableness. Now here's what I have heard Christian leaders say. This is prominent. This is prominent thought within Christian circles in America that it's this idea that the ends justify the means. Meaning, it's okay for Christians to not act like Christians so long as we achieve our Christian goals. Say, so it's okay. We have to be ugly. We have to, we have to be ugly now. We have to be rude because we need to get our guy in office. Or we need to get this law passed. It's okay. We are in a fight. And so, the ends justify their means. It's okay to not act Christian to achieve our Christian goals. This is not okay. The church, no matter how divisive, no matter how polarizing, no matter how combative things get, we need to act like Jesus in all circumstances and situations. It's not like we compromise what we have convictions about, but we don't act counter to who Christ has called us to be. All right, fourth practice. Fourth practice. In verse 6, it says, don't be anxious. Now, this is a command. Scripture actually says, don't, don't be anxious. And this command is, um, is connected with the others. You can't be full of joy uh, and anxious at the same time. And you can't be, if you're anxious, you can't be full of joy. And to live with anxiety is to live with this persistent, self-defeating, loaded with doom and gloom. It's anxiety that prevents joy. But I don't want to be uncompassionate here because I know this is a big conversation. I know that m- people are more anxious than any other time uh, that, we, that we know of. I mean, our teenagers are more anxious and full of worry and more depressed than any, any other time in history. And this is a significant issue that we're facing right now. 
But Scripture does have something to say. I don't want to be insensitive. I don't want to, to give you a, a just a, a blank slate answer um, for what we are to do with this issue. But Scripture does teach about it. Scripture does have something to say about it. And so I just want to look at what Scripture has to say. And if you're struggling with anxiety, like talk to one of the leaders here. Like, work this out. Pray with leaders. Get help. But here's what Scripture tells us to do with our anxiousness. It said, not be anxious. So this is a command. And so how do we possibly do this? Well, this passage says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. If you're in Christ, God is not far from you. And this should bring encouragement to us. What reality are you believing? Are you believing that your problems are so much greater, so much more present and near to you? Or are you standing what we believe as Christians saying, Jesus is near to me. Jesus is always with me. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He will never fail me. He will never abandon me. Jesus is present with me. Rooted in that truth would push back anxiety from our hearts. Hebrews 13 says, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will have no fear. For the Lord is my helper, I will have no anxiety. Someone said that anxiety is the result of imagining or anticipating the future without God. And this is something that we have to come to terms with, with anxiety. It's the future... Or imagining, anticipating the future without God is taking God out of the equation. As you look ahead, as you're anticipating what's happening, as you're laying awake at night in the middle of the night and you're anticipating what's happening, you're anticipating a negative outcome, you're anticipating doom, and we're taking God out of the equation. We're not including God in our story, that he will be with us. He's with us now. He'll be with us in that moment that we're anticipating in our future. And this is functional atheism. It's, it, we're professing we're Christians at one hand, but our trust structures in our heart is I trust in me. I don't actually believe that God's going to be with me as I face significant issues in my life. So how can we overcome anxiety? This passage gives us some insight of how we overcome or push back anxiety in our hearts. And that's by prayer. We can choose uh, only one. Lots of anxiety with little prayer or Little anxiety with lots of prayer. This is what this passage tells us. Which one do you want? We are told not to worry about anything, but to pray about everything. Like we bring all our requests before God. We trust God and we get a good night's sleep is what scripture tells us. Psalms 127.2 says, In vain you rise up and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those who, who he loves. Like we, we run around, we carry all these burdens, we're trying to do everything, but God actually gives good sleep. And we can rest confident in Him. God always loves us. He's always in control. He never worries. So we want to trust in the one who never worries. God isn't anxious. He's not going, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I don't know. Hope it works out for you. No, we... We believe in a God who's never anxious. So why don't we trust the one who is never anxious? 1 Peter 5, 7, give all your worries and cares to God for he cares 
about you. So we pray. We pray. We go before God and we trust Him. All right. You guys okay? We got one more practice. We're done. So uh, here's what uh, the last practice is. Think on the right things. Think on the right things. And this is a practice. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So Paul is introducing a practice. He actually says practice these things in verse 9. He is wanting them to practice this. This is a, a practice for Christians that what we think about is a practice. So do you see directing your thoughts as a spiritual discipline? Mm -hmm. Do you see guarding and being cautious about what enters your mind as a spiritual discipline? Or are you spiritually immature and your mind is open to every thought that comes your way? And you're unguarded. And social media, TV, friends, neighbors are constantly bombarding having access to your minds and thoughts. Like right now, we are living a social experiment. Like social media, the access that we have on our phones. Like This is new. We don't actually have long studies to actually see the detriment that all this access has on us. And every day, we have an endless volume of ideas fighting for our attention. So we need to engage in the spiritual discipline of closing our mind, closing access to what is negative and thinking about what is true and about what is right. If we give negative thoughts access to our minds, what will be the outcome? Have you thought about that? We give this constant bombardment of lives, of falsehoods, of things that are showing us um, attractive things to chase after apart from God? Like, what is this going to do to us? Things that are untrue rather than true is what we're going to be thinking about. Dishonorable rather than honorable. Unjust and evil rather than just. Impure things rather than pure things. Repulsive things rather than lovely things. Wrong things rather than what is commendable. Filthy things rather than what is morally excellent. Shameful things rather than those things that are admirable. Like, where do you land? What is, what is the, the, the bulk of what you are thinking about dwelling on on a daily basis? Because we're told to guard our mind. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So we want to fill our mind. We don't want to just be defensive and say, nope, 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 like all these guard, guards in our mind and access from, from access from what is wrong. We, we want to be offensive. Yeah, and this is, what, this is what Paul is saying. Yeah. It's like, don't just be defensive. Be, be on the offense. Like fill your mind with, with what, what is true, what is honorable, pure. Dwell upon it. Talk about it. As you, as you get together in little accountability groups, like that should be the content of our conversation. Hey, I just want to talk about how amazing God's word is. Like it's blown my, it's blown my mind. I had this revelation today and we sharing it with one another. 
we're telling testimonies. Oh my gosh, can you believe Johnny? I mean, I thought there was no hope for that guy, but God is on the move in his heart and he's starting to change. Glory to God. God is amazing. It's going on a hike with a guy and saying, oh my gosh, look at the beauty of God's creation. God is worthy of our glory. It's being intentional. Like uh, as the world overwhelms us with negativity, we have to be just as active to fill our minds with beauty, with truth, what is, what is right. So what is the outcome of those that are thinking on all this negativity? Man, you know what? It's so dangerous in churches. It's Christians who are full of unbelief, who are critical, who are complaining, who are cynical, who are whining. If we take a, just a general view of Christianity in America, there is a lot of unbelief, a lot of criticism, a lot of complaining, a lot of cynicism, a lot of whining. Where does that come from? That's just fruit on the trees from roots that are full of thinking on the wrong things. Man, we want fruit within churches and within the Christian's life that's demonstrating what is beautiful and true. We want to experience God's blessing. Part of that is focusing, disciplining our minds, counterpractices. I am in a dwell in what is good and right and true. Because this is what Jesus has for us. Spiritual maturity takes some work. And we have to engage in counterpractices. Like, can you imagine? These five basic principles, they're all stuff that you've heard before. I mean, I haven't said anything that's like, wow, I've never heard that before. But why is the church in America not doing these five basic things? Like what would happen if the church in America started engaging in these five basic practices? Like there's unity, agreement with one another, reasonableness with one another, joy. Church, Christians, like, man, I'm tired of running into all these Christians. They're so full of joy all the time. I can't stand it, right? How awesome would that be? Like in a world where anxiety is going through the roof and all the stats, the only outlier is the church where anxiety is going down. I mean, we have an opportunity as a church, but it requires that we do something. Yes, Jesus saved us. It's all by his grace. But if we're going to grow up and mature, we have to do something. We have to do something. We need to let the grace of God train us towards righteousness and to leave ungodly ways. I'd love to pray with you. God, thank you for this church that has a long-standing history of spiritual maturity. Thank you, God, that this church has disciples of Jesus who are multiplying themselves and reproducing disciples of Jesus. God, I pray, Lord, that... Um, that this church would be effective uh, to engage in what spiritual maturity looks like. And they'd stand out as outliers within the city and shine brightly as lights as they practice the way of Jesus. Bless this church, Lord. Bless these people. 
Um, in Jesus' name.